The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is best-selling author Stephen Arterburn. His new book is Worthy of Her Trust, What You Need to Do to Rebuild Sexual Energy and Win Her Back. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, uh, Catherine. Appreciate that. Well, great to have you here. You are the author, obviously, of this book with many other books, I guess over a hundred other books, uh, co-author of the best-selling Everyman series, founder and chairman of New Life Clinics, and a nationally known public speaker, and uh, you have a radio show on Sirius Radio and uh, many other terrestrial stations. So, okay, your book. Worthy of Her Trust, What You Need to Do to Rebuild Sexual Integrity and Win Her Back. My first question is, well, why did you decide to write the book, and uh, is there a lot of cheating that goes on? With This book is for men, so mm-hmm. there are a lot of males in our society cheating, hence the reason for writing the book. Right. Okay. So um, we have a workshop that we do at New Life called the Every Man's Battle Workshop, which is, you know, based on the uh, best-selling book, Every Man's Battle. And um, I have to say, in the area of sexual integrity, that is kind of the, the standard. It's, um, it's sold, uh, you know, of course, over a million copies and uh, still continues to sell. And it is about pornography and affairs, because many women uh, actually... When they find out that the, a guy has been involved with bizarre uh, video pornography on the Internet, uh, many women feel that it's just as devastating to them as an affair is. So we help a person at every man's battle. But, but when they leave there, they have a job to do, and that job is to regain her trust. Uh, and if they, uh, you know, take for granted uh, that things are just going to happen, and we've listed some myths about this in the book, uh, then they're going to be very, very disappointed. But when you ask about numbers, um, you know, some of the research shows that 80% of men at least once a month are online looking at some form of pornography. Well, so if that the statistics are so high, and and there's a similar statistics that I've read as well, uh, mm-hmm. not just online, but also in you know just not just virtual, but also face to face, literally. Yeah. I mean, some of the stats: one in five adults um, yeah. in monogamous relationships, or 22 percent, have cheated on their current partner. So we're talking about on on the net as well as in real life. Right. Um, 
if that's the case, um, maybe we have to look at what look at marriage. I mean, maybe there's something inherently flawed in in marriage if so many people are involved in this kind of behavior. Yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I I think that um, I, I wrote this uh, other book called uh, The Seven Minute Marriage Solution, and I wrote um, you know seven things you could start doing and seven you could stop immediately, and one of the things you could start doing is honoring your lifetime vows. And a lot of people, you know, they think, well, that means I'm never going to have sex with anyone. But there needs to be so much more than that. It also says, you know, most people make a vow to honor uh, the other person and to cherish the other person. And, you know, if you honor the other person, if you keep that vow to honor them, you're not going to be involved with it. So I think we need to do um, a lot of work on what it means to honor a lifetime vow that you make when you get married. I also think that people don't know how to be intimate, uh, sexually intimate or emotionally in- intimate. And so in the absence of intimacy, they go for the intense uh, experience of the affair or pornography or something like that. And if we could help them uh, connect, we could, through our premarital counseling, help them understand how to be intimate with uh, her, then uh, I think we've accomplished something with these men. Well, so how do you do that? How do you teach men to be intimate? Because now you're already talking about grown men, let's make the assumption, over 21 who are about to get married. Uh, if they haven't had that kind of background of being able to be to express themselves, to be intimate, to grow up in a family, let's say, where that's allowed, how do you do that, let's say, in your classes, you know, premarital? I'm always curious about premarital counseling because, you know, it's kind of one of those things you don't really know what it's like marriage until you actually get married, till the day after you're married. It's true. And, uh, but it's always good to talk about that, to say to somebody that, uh, by the way, you don't have a realistic impression of each other. At some point, you're going to wake up one morning and uh, the thrill will be gone. The, the romance... Uh, hormones won't be pumping anymore, and reality is going to set in. And so I think just to prepare the, uh, a person for that helps uh, right there, because if if someone isn't aware of that, then they're going to immediately start thinking, oh, my gosh, I married the wrong person. I deserve so much more. Uh, the other person is bad. They, they uh, cheated me. Uh, they weren't honest with me. And in reality... They're just being what uh, everybody is like. I mean, they are just a little bit different on the other side of eating that uh, married, uh, wedding cake. So what you're talking about is realistic expectations, and I think that That's really right. is important. And I think as in our culture, we don't have realistic expectations. We're still right. kind of stuck on that fairy tale version of marriage, and you're ultimately going to be disappointed, whether it's the week after, months after, or a year later. So realistic expectations is what you're saying. If we That's have right. realistic of, of ourselves and of our partner, uh, or both. So Well, and another point on that is um, a person might think 
that um, I call this the bifurcation myth. A person might think, well, you know, I've got this problem with pornography, and but once I'm married, uh, I'm not going to have that problem anymore. And then they get married, and they realize that uh, a wedding doesn't change your character one bit. And, in fact, when you are frustrated and angry with this other person because they're not meeting your expectation, uh, then this expectation falls away, and you're right back trying to comfort yourself or soothe yourself uh, with uh, getting, you know, getting involved with another person or um, getting back to the pornography that you were involved with. What is, is pornography ever good or is it always bad? I mean, it, or it, does it have to do with, you know, it's sort of like you can be addicted to uh, alcohol, but then you can also drink alcohol responsibly. So it, it's not necessarily an addiction or it isn't an addiction. It's just a pleasant experience. Can the same be true of pornography? I mean, it seems to me, I mean, if it's constant, it's all the time and it replaces an intimate relationship with your partner, it would seem then it's very negative. But can it ever, and I keep asking the same question, but can <laughs> it ever be positive? Well, if we look at uh, pornography, um, the objectification that happens um, with a, a man toward a woman um, happens in the presence of pornography. She becomes uh, a set of body parts that are there for his pleasure. Now, you have to be honest about pornography. Pornography is not about looking at pictures. It's about masturbation. And so it is um, all an experience with yourself, with no judgment, no intimacy, uh, no one uh, there to evaluate you so you've objectified a woman, you've used her for your own pleasure. Now, all that sexual energy that you just spent on this, this video and, and within yourself having uh, sex with yourself, all that sexual energy, if that had been put toward her, you know, you, you might have a different kind of marriage. So I've never found anything good about pornography, plus uh, the women that are involved in pornography, if you talk to them uh, afterwards, you know, these were desperate women. Some of them uh, came to Hollywood, you know, for the big uh, success, and, you know, it was either pornography or living on the streets. And if it ha they hadn't had this option, maybe they would have found uh, some other career in life that would have uh, been, uh, you know, much more reputable and honoring. But I think pornography always dishonors uh, whoever's involved in it. It objectifies, and you, you just can't, um, you can't ever make it a good thing. You know, um, one of the biggest, yeah, let me just tell you one thing, that when, in 1953, when Hugh Hefner started pornography, uh, there were all of these anti-porn people that were afraid that if this proliferated, women wouldn't be safe in their homes, that men would be so stimulated by all the pornography. And this was long before the Internet, of course. And so they went on a campaign against pornography because they were afraid pe women would be raped in the streets and not safe in their homes because the pornography would stimulate the man so much. And the exact opposite has happened. 
um, you know, pornography really does interfere with your desire for a real live woman. There was a time when a naked woman uh, was pretty exciting and special to a man, but now uh, he sees those everywhere, and then they his wife doesn't match up to those images. It really does hurt the level of sexual intimacy that they can have. So that's my belief that, no, it's never good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I disagree with you on that one. I think sometimes it, and it has a certain purpose. I mean, it's sort of, I, you know, as a therapist and talking to couples, um, sometimes couples watch pornography together and it stimulates their relationship, which is different than what you're talking about. You're talking, I guess, about men just simply sitting in front of a computer and masturbating, which is not necessarily helpful to their intimate relationship with their partner. But couples use pornography in ways that really help to stimulate their own sexual relationship. It's, you know, it's used in different ways, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and and I my, only, yeah. Let me just say, I just think that is a shortcut um, of sexual stimulation to uh, from versus the longer route of developing true intimacy and connection with each other. Because if I am connected to you, if I am uh, open and honest and authentic with you, if I'm taking time every day uh, to put you before me, that kind of stuff, uh, the sexual interest, I think, is going to be there. So I just, I, you know, my little phrase is it's a shortcut and you don't have to take that shortcut. And when you don't, I think you end up with a better marriage. See, I think you can integrate the two. I wouldn't say either or. I mean, that, you know, couples have to sit down and watch pornography all the time to stimulate their sex life. But you may use it on occasion. Uh, you, it just like, and I, I keep going back to the same analogy, I mean, you may have a glass of wine or a martini, or but if you're going to do that every day, uh, constantly, uh, that's not going to help your your ability to communicate with your partner. But on occasion... Well, if- if, if on occasion um, you tell your, your partner, uh, I want you to drink uh, this concoction uh, of bourbon and vodka and rum and, you know, all of this yeah. on occasion, and, and your partner doesn't feel like drinking that, something that's saturated with alcohol, that's not a good thing. And one of the things that happens when couples, and I know we're, we're not going to come to an agreement on this, but <laughs> when couples watch pornography together, uh, there's some stuff often on there that he wants to do, and she just is, you know, she just thinks it's, it's sick or it's wrong or it, uh, she's not comfortable with it. And, and so he says, well, you know, he expects her to normalize it and think it's okay uh, but for her, it isn't. So sometimes I think pornography puts into the mind of a man ideas about sex, and um, if he hadn't looked at it, he wouldn't ha- have had those ideas, and they go beyond uh, the bounds of what his his wife is comfortable with and what is nurturing to her. But then as a woman, I... and, and uh talking to colleagues and girlfriends and women do talk a lot, I think more than men do, about sex, about their partners, their husbands. I think they tend to be more open about their relationships. That's a generalization. Yes, I so. But yeah. I think women are much more, have, have, have a real ability when they are 
they love someone or they feel very close to someone or they are very creative and sometimes much more so and maybe even more demanding uh, than men are when it comes to sex uh, with their would, partners. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I think, yeah. Some. I would say some. I, I agree with you. Some of them are, yeah, much more, um, uh, let's just say, um, have more courage or uh-huh. or more willing or or more fearless uh, than a man. There's no question about that. But I don't think that characterizes all women. And, and certainly with the, you know the Fifty Shades of Grey, you've you've got um, women reading that and kind of being uh, stimulated by that or will, more willing to try some things. But still, um, you know what he wants to do is usually, usually, I think, um, there's a lot more in his uh, box to want to do than usually is in her box. But that is changing a little bit. Yeah, and that's a, and obviously that's on an individual basis, each couple, right. each individual. So you kind of have to, you know, make sure that we're not, I think, generalizing too much. But let's, okay, right. so let's bring it back to the book because... Um, I guess the premise of the book and your co-author had a problem with sex addiction and then he was able to rekindle his marriage and, and uh, get in, and be in a positive place with it. You know, sex addiction, what is sex? That's kind of a new term. What is sex addiction anyway? I think, let's, can you define it? Well, um, I think sexual addiction um, has has many things to it that define it and and for one, um, it is when a person uses sex uh, compulsively to comfort themselves, and then uh, they become so dependent on the sexual experience that it starts to interfere with their their life and the intimacy with other people. Um, you know, it, when they try to to stop the compulsive uh, sex act, uh, they can't. When they stop, they go into kind of a withdrawal, because, like an alcoholic does, because they they have decided that this this sexual addiction, this compulsive uh, sex that they they do, is just too painful, causes too much trouble. They. They, maybe they were fired for looking at pornography on the job because they just couldn't help it. Uh, you know, maybe they were up at night uh, on the computer uh, masturbating and, one of, and the two-year-old walked in, which I hear about all the time. So they decide, hey, this is causing problems with me. I cannot control it. I, I am obsessed uh, with this, and I do it compulsively. Um, I think that's, you know, what most people would say is um, an addiction, and it has a special category. You know, it's not like shooting heroin into your, your veins. And, but I do believe that there are people that are involved with some unhealthy, unfaithful uh, sexual practices that they simply cannot stop on their own. They need to get some kind of treatment for it. And, yeah, I'm glad uh, you define that, Stephen, because I think sometimes it's used 
particularly, and it can be a male or I mean, a woman or a man, used as an yeah. excuse, you know, for yeah. infidelity. And they're not necessarily people who are sex addicts. Maybe they've they've just, you know, they've been unfaithful, but then they define themselves as sex addicts and they can't really stop. So as you're defining it, that's extreme behavior. And um, that's very different than being um, not faithful once or twice. You you know, I I found that, you know, what you as a social worker or uh, any psychologist, what, what they would do with the word addiction is entirely different than what an attorney does with it. And that's where you see people uh, trying to to uh, not take responsibility or trying to be proven innocent, uh, and their big defense is, "Oh, I was I was addicted. I couldn't control it." And um, so, a lot of times, we hear the on the news what an attorney tries to do with certain things uh, to get their person, um, you know, a, a not guilty verdict. But that that really doesn't represent what most good, solid therapists and social workers and people in the helping profession believe. Yeah, okay, so the legal definition is definitely different than the psychological definition. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, winning, let's, getting back to the book again, how do, you know, your spouse has been unfaithful, mm-hmm. and uh, you actually, I guess, in the book, there are actual tools that you can use to help build a better foundation for your marriage, build up the trust. How do you do that? I mean, is it really possible to do that um, after some, you're, we're saying your husband has been unfaithful? Yes. I mean, um, you know, I had a spouse that was unfaithful and I, um, certain things were put in place and uh, I, you know, I trust her now very much trust her now. But when a guy is tired of this secret life, um, then he's committed to transparency and he makes restitution and he uh, does things like minimize his travel and, and then he spends intentional time with her to increase their uh, connection. And everything that was gray to him becomes black and white. You know, he, he just, he kind of rationalized and, and, uh, made excuses, but all of that changes. And he's, he is either living according to, to their agreement of what he, he should be doing and what he shouldn't be, or he's, he's cheating. And so total honesty is required. Uh, sometimes, a, a, a wife wants to be able to call him and that he will return that call within five minutes. Uh, that's a, that's a, a great thing. His willingness to do that and his um, being where he says he was going to be, you know, if you do that enough, uh, eventually you can build some, some trust back. It, it's different for different people. Some people want, want him to write down a, a log of where he is uh, every 30 minutes and what he's doing. So um, there, there are a lot of different things that need to be put in place. Writing down, for, oh, I want to get back to that one. That would, I, I, I would be, it would drive me crazy. I mean, if I were the one who had to write a log down of every, where I was every five minutes. Well, I couldn't would, do it. Yeah. I, I would just have to plead guilty that I, I just, I couldn't, I have attention deficit disorder and I just, 
I would not be able to pull that one off. But I'm, I'm saying that, you know, there are different things uh, that, that sh- she may want him to do to prove that there really has been a change. And one, one of the things we say, and this is just kind of the bottom line, watch what he does, not what he says. And if he says he's, boy, he's really trying harder and, you know, this versus getting involved in a support group with other men, getting some counseling or getting treatment, you know, they're just two t- entirely different things. Talking about, about it versus watching him walk out the door to go to a meeting, uh, two different things. What do you think about now that people uh, have the opportunity to be together longer? Uh, is it possible to have a marriage or to be with somebody for 40 years or 50 years and never be with anyone else or never sleep with anyone else? Is that, is that something that's sort of, are we hardwired to do that? Well, I don't know if we're hardwired to do that. Um, but I do know that we, uh, as human beings, are able to make choices. And um, some of the sweetest relationships that I know of are those relationships that have, you know, the people have been together 50 years and they're still having fun and enjoying themselves and they still have an intimate uh, sex life. So I, my answer would be yes, I think we can do that whether we're hardwired to do it or not. And I don't know if we're hardwired to do that. <laughs> it almost sounds, some of the things you're describing almost sound like a chore. It's sort of like, I have to prove this to you, uh, you know, in, in terms of like, well, you mentioned that logging in wherever you are, which is kind of like ringing in my brain. I could, but yeah. um, like you're constantly being evaluated. Whoever yeah. is the person who is not, who is, uh, you know, with part of the infidelity, you're walking around with some on eggshells with someone who's evaluating you and whether or not you're being honest or you're being transparent. Um, to me, it would drive me crazy. I, I, I don't know that I would yeah. be able to do that. I mean, talking right. about what went on and the reason why maybe I had an affair or I was with somebody else and really getting into that would be more helpful to me. Well, if a person is willing to do anything that his partner needs or wants to regain trust uh, and he has no reason to hide anything, then he's going to do these things. You know, some uh, programs, we don't recommend this, but, but some programs recommend that he have a lie detector test about every six months. And, you know, if that's what it takes for a woman in the first stages of his recovery uh, to trust him, then he needs to be willing to do that. That doesn't mean that that's going to be going on um, two years later. But in the beginning, winning her back and, and regaining her trust, there needs to be a willingness to do whatever it takes versus I will dictate what I will do to prove to you that I'm trustworthy. That doesn't work. Well, what about some kind of a, a compromise or an agreement? Because I think, to me, the way it, you're describing it, if you try to force somebody to take lie detector tests, then uh, I, I can't see how that that would make someone really want to... I, I would want to leave. Well, <laughs> I, I, mean, I didn't yeah. say force somebody to take yeah. a lie detector test. I said 
the guy gets to a place where he's willing to, to do whatever it takes. And uh, if that's what it takes to win her back, then he's willing to do it. Now, you're not going to do that um, without counsel. And you talk about compromise. The whole recovery thing is compromise. And, you know, with a good uh, counselor, you can develop a dialogue of compromise versus uh, he feels entitled to what he did and she's angry about what he did. I mean, that, that's kind of a worthless uh, relationship there. But when he says, hey, I, I'd like to make this up to you, I realize I hurt you, uh, then things like that can get talked about. And, um, you know, a willingness or a lack of willingness may dictate what they end up doing. Well, Stephen, it's intriguing to talk to you, and we, I, I, um, and we only have a minute left, so I want to make sure that, obviously, that listeners can go to your website as well as you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. The name of the book is Worthy of Her Trust, What You Need to Do to Rebuild Sexual Integrity and Win Her Back. We just touched on a few of the topics, but there's a lot more in the book. So uh, what's the website that they, your website? It's uh, newlife.com, and then if you want to see videos on the subject, you go to tv.newlife.com, and if you want to talk to somebody about sexual integrity, you phone 1-800-NEW-LIFE. Great. Thanks so much for talking with us this morning. Hey, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the dialogue. I did, too. Okay. All right, great. We're going to take a break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is co-founder and chief empowerment officer of Eye to Eye, David Flink. His new book is Thinking Differently, an Inspiring Guide for Parents of Children with Learning Disabilities. Welcome to the show, David. Nice to have you on. Uh, pleasure to be on it. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, as I understand it, um, besides being the co-founder and chief empowerment officer of Eye to Eye, uh, you've written this new book as a result of, at age nine, you were diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD and struggled with that, I guess, for many years before you went to college, feeling hopeless and left out. So you've, um, according to your book, uh, you have uh, developed a, a kind of a new definition for those who uh, young people who are suffering from ADHD and dyslexia and a uh, whole um, curriculum for getting through school in a very positive way. Yeah, you know, it's been a really, um, it's, it's an adventure when you have um, a learning difference. And, um, you know, one of the things that kind of emerges when you're young um, and you get this label is a, a sense of, of loneliness. Um, a lot of times you get this label and you don't, you don't know who else learns like you. And as I got older, um, I realized first and foremost that one in five people in America have some kind of learning difference. So it's actually a huge population, but you can't look at someone and know they have a learning difference, so it's invisible. Yeah. Um, so you call and, it, you're calling it learning difference. That's a new term, right? Is that, is that yeah, a term you know, that I you think coined? there's an evolution. I, um, depending on the context, I'll call it a learning disability or a learning difference. And um, what I would say is so I don't love the words learning disability. And some of that is the idea that someone could be so disabled that they couldn't learn is really, um, it's unfair. Um, if you were to ask me, do I have a reading disability? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad there's no um, reading out loud that happens in this interview because it would be a disaster for both of us. Um, we're just talking. Yes, we're just talking. It's going to be great. Um, so I, I, I don't have um, a problem with the idea of having disabilities around reading or paying attention. The idea of a learning disability um, feels like a challenge to me. Um, one thing to, to note for anyone who's listening, I mean, it's important to have that word and those words together give you rights in school um, and in the workplace as well. So one of the things I actually discuss in the book is when do you use the language of learning disabilities and when do you use the language of learning difference? And in fact, one of the reasons why I call the book Thinking Differently is I really wanted especially parents to understand is a thinking difference. Um, learning is transactional. It happens between a person and their environment. Um, but thinking is what happens in ourselves. And um, I have a lot of pride in, in my thinking difference, and, and I feel that all, all people should. Well, and, difference um, yeah. has, is a positive connotation, and disability, obviously, I think has a negative connotation. But just getting back to like how many like statistics, because I hear more and more about uh, kids having thinking differently, uh, is 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 the problem getting uh, I say worse, or are, are we diagno- being able to diagnose this ADHD? You know, we do it more than we were able to, or we have the ability to to do better diagnoses or what? Or is there just more kids, I say suffering, I, don't, I can't think, I'm afraid to use a negative word, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the word suffering is appropriate, and, I, okay. and we can unpack that in a minute, but um, I, what I would say is that we're getting better. You hear a lot of conversation, particularly in the media, of overdiagnosis, and um, what, what's actually happening is we're getting better at identifying it, and that's a good thing. Um, in fact, it's a great thing. 
uh, I wish I had known sooner in my education um, that I had had, you know, in this case, I'll use the word learning disability because as soon as I got that label, it gave me rights, it gave me a better education, it gave me the ability to succeed on my terms. Um, but the word suffer is an important word because what kids are suffering from is stigma. There's a, there's a ton of stigma attached to the words learning disabilities. They're suffering from a miseducation. So an easy example that I use is I was asked to learn by reading with my eyes. As soon as we understood that I had dyslexia, as soon as we understood that reading with my eyes was going to be a challenge, I was allowed to read with my ears. And then I did well in school. And so when we force kids to learn one way without understanding that it's okay to learn a different way, um, they do suffer. And well, so, you are, yeah. uh, and we didn't, I didn't mention this in the beginning, but uh, you went to Brown University. One of my sons went to Brown University. You were a smart man, young man, and then you graduated with a master's degree from Columbia University. So here's this really smart kid uh, who thinks differently, and when you, I guess what you're saying is that if you have the opportunity to be diagnosed and have the opportunity to learn differently, you're, you have the opportunity to do what you've done or to accomplish what you've done. Cause, Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure you saw through your son's experience, I mean, one of the things that was particularly unique about Brown, um, and it's unique in other schools as well, is that they actually don't um, have any kind of structured curriculum at Brown. Um, I'm sure your son probably enjoyed it the same way I did. And this was the first time for me where I went to school and I decided how I wanted to learn. Did I want to be in a group lecture? Did I want to be in a small class? Did I want to take a class where the assignments were going to be written assignments? Or did I want a class where it was going to be a multiple choice test? And it, it changed for me my sense of who I was as a learner. And, and much of what's in this book is giving parents the tools to do that for their kids in the K-12 environment. Some of it is, is sort of foreshadowing to what, what they can do to help their kids in college. But if things go really well, their kids are so empowered as learners that they can go and do those things for themselves when they get to college. Would you describe it as creative learning? I mean, the opportunity to, to learn creatively, which I think that schools really do, for particularly public schools, kind of fall back on. This kind of learning. yeah yeah I really love that I haven't I haven't um, you know used that turn of phrase before but I really love that um, particularly because kids these kids that we're talking about the one in five kids in America that have you know these we'll call it LD for learning disability or learning difference I don't have to get into the term the kids who have LD or ADHD those kids are really creative um, and a lot of times if we ask children um, how do they learn best they may not have an answer immediately. But if we give them that opportunity to explore it together, they come up with some very creative solutions. And then you see why later on in life, they continue to come up with really creative solutions for our society. You look at some of the um, you know, most genius entrepreneurs in our society, and a lot of them have learning differences. I often think of Steve Jobs. Um, I mean, how many of us, our lives have been changed because of products that have come out of Apple? Um, I know I look at my iPhone every day, um, and I just push the little, you know, little button to ask Siri, you know, what do I have to do today? And she just tells me. And that's such an elegant solution to a challenge that I have with my ADHD, which is ever, you know, being on time and getting to the place at the right place and the right time. And it, now there's this device that this very creative ADHD man um, came up with that makes sure that I don't have to worry about that. I thank Steve Jobs every day. I have an <laughs> iPad. I have an iPad, and I tell my boyfriend I can substitute you for the iPad. <laughs> Watch and out, I buddy! Him. I really do. I probably mentioned his name at least twice or three times a week. I mean, he's a game changer, and he changed the world. He changed my world. So interesting that you brought him up as an example. I 
couldn't agree more. Um, and there's so many. I mean, I, I, um, I, I think a lot about Richard Branson, um, yeah. who you know founded the, the numerous Virgin um, brands. Um, I think a lot about folks in the entertainment space. I mean, I love Whoopi Goldberg as, as a personal yeah. favorite who has yeah. a learning difference. And um, there's just so, you know, so many people who, um, once you get past a challenging school environment, then young people can go on and achieve greatness. And I think that we have lots of examples of people who've gone on to do that. And really what I'm hopeful for um, in thinking differently is an opportunity for, for families to a, see that there's, it's okay to have a slightly different path, and I'm sharing mine as well as the path um, of tons and tons of other folks that I interviewed for the book um, and who've been involved in my organization eye to eye. Um, and then also I, I hope that the book in, in a way can kind of break down the stigma. I have this image that, that folks will carry the book around as a way to find each other. They'll just see someone else carrying the book and be like, oh, wait, you're part of that one in five community. Let, let's talk. Yeah, um, well, that's really what we don't have because so well. let's talk. You know, we mentioned you mentioned Steve Jobs and Richard Branson. Okay, those are superheroes. Let's talk about just like or, ordinary people. What about Regular parents folks. who are sitting there with their kids? Do they have to wait till their kids are so frustrated and uh, you know when they're in school pre K? You were nine years old before you uh, were were diagnosed. What what do parents like your your typical parent who's sitting there with a child who is frustrated? What what do you do? How do you hand you know so that you, they don't have to go through years of, of, uh, of struggling or even, you know, the first three or four years of, of uh, elementary school. What, how do you, what, can we talk about that? Yeah. So I think parents need to unpack two things. One is potentially their emotional association um, with the idea of learning disabilities. And the second piece is a tactical piece, what they actually need to do. And I dedicated really the first third of the book to helping folks um, be able to unpack those two things. So I would actually start with, with not the tactical, but the emotional. Um, I think a lot of parents have an expectation that their kids, I mean, all parents, I think, have this expectation that that life's just going to be grand for their kids. And as soon as there's a stumbling block, they don't know what to do, Um, particularly if those expectations break away from what their hopes and dreams might be for their kids. Uh, Say they want to, you know, have a kid who was just like them in school. They went to school and they they sat still and they were able to focus and they didn't get in trouble. And they have a kid who has ADHD, and that means that attention is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to sit still and focus and so that kid gets in trouble. And they, all they want is their kid to do well, but they don't know what it might mean for them to have this scary ADHD label. So they have to unpack that and know that it's not scary and know that there could be some great things as a result of seeing this world in this different way. So they need to spend some time thinking through that with themselves. And the second piece is they just need to use the resources that are available to them, to them in school. And they have to ask for it. So there is um, some onus on the families to be able to ask the schools to provide what's called a least restrictive learning environment. I'm sure you're very familiar with that term, but I suspect some of the folks on the phone may not be. So they have to make sure that their school does what they're supposed to do in getting the kid, you know, at least to see if they have a diagnosis. And if they have a diagnosis, to make sure that the kid gets on what's called an IEP or a 504 plan, um, which will make sure that the kid gets simply the tools they need to be successful in school. Um, I'm actually curious from your experience. In your experience, David, are more and more schools tying into this? Are they doing that? Is this something that you see? I mean, as you've been interviewing all these people and, you know, you're associated with all these school systems. Right. um, Is this being done? So what I've seen is that um, more and more, because of some great awareness that's been happening, particularly, you know, allowing folks like me to come on the air, um, they are are acutely aware of the fact that, that students who have these learning differences 
live in their schools. Um, and they want to help them, but they, they, they are overtaxed. And so if parents just go a little bit further and sort of help them see what is already happening in their classrooms, they're more than happy to make sure those schools um, are, are the best places for, for all students. Um, with that said, there's lots of options, and I've outlined a lot of the different types of schooling options that are available to families um, in the book, understanding that you know, not all schools are created equal, and um, sometimes it takes some shifting around. I mean, I went to four different schools um, just in my just in my K through 12, you know, life, um, and that was hard, you know, to just move around that much. Do you have siblings? Do you have siblings that your parents were comparing you to? I don't. I'm an only child, but one of the things that I discovered in doing these interviews for the book is how often uh, the relationship to family is a, is um, a challenge, and what it might mean if one kid sort of needing what would be probably thought of as a little extra attention to help with the learning difference and the other kid is not and how that plays out in a family. Yeah, so the family dynamics are very important. I mean, right, if you have just one child, then that's the child you have, that's what you know. If you've got two children or three children and you're comparing this child who seems to be having a little more difficulty uh, it, it, and, and siblings... Um, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, even bullying. I'm not so sure with siblings necessarily, but when kids are different, I mean, that's an issue that comes up. I think you mentioned that in the book. Yeah, di- different is hard, and bullying is an epidemic. And it can happen at home. At times, it, you know, it certainly happens in our school systems, unfortunately, all the time. And um, I think half of, what, half of the battle is actually uh, allowing um, our kids to have a good sense of self. So, uh, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, I have reference to all these celebrities. And I remember my family, they kept saying, well, you know, don't worry, Tom Cruise is dyslexic. And I kept saying, well, unless Tom Cruise is going to come and defend me at school, uh, it's not a lot of help for me right now. Um, and so one of the things that was really helpful around eighth grade, I went to a school specifically for kids with learning disabilities. And the best part of that school wasn't actually the education I got. I mean, it was great. I got a terrific education there, and I was grateful to have an education that fit with the way my brain worked. But the best thing that happened for me was that I knew other people who had learning differences. And then the year following going to that school, I went to a mainstream school, and I was bullied um, to a very scary degree. So how were you bullied when you say to a scary degree? What did the kids do to you? So so it started with the fact that kids kind of knew that I had this learning difference. I was very um, much the target. Um, they knew because of the school I was coming from. And, um, I mean, I was physically, you know, beaten up and um, name-calling. and I mean, it was horrible. It was really bad. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times kids kind of smell blood on the water. And, and as soon as I sort of didn't stand up, it just got worse and worse. Um, but what got me through that experience was the fact that I knew all these other kids from my prior school that had learning differences. And what's, what, if, what I wish I had known then that I know now, um, and it's a big part of what we do at Eye to Eye, is the power of community. So it didn't occur to me that there were other kids at that school who were going through what I was going through. Um, I just closed off into myself. I didn't talk to anybody. Um, believe it or not, I became very, very shy. I was not someone who would have gone on the radio and done an interview, that's for sure. And... Uh, it was really through just owning in my heart that I knew that out there somewhere where other kids like me um, was what got me through it. But if I had actually made an effort to meet one or two of them 
and statistically speaking, they were right around me, you know, 20% chance that they were around me somewhere, I think it would have been a lot easier. So you have to have an ally, a support group. I mean, is that what you're saying? I mean, it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the magic of what my nonprofit does eye to eye is we take college students who all have these learning differences and they come into schools and they mentor young kids who have learning differences. And as a result, we create community um, because suddenly these cool college kids are, are coming in and everyone's like, oh, well, I want a mentor like that. Oh, well, you have to have a learning dis- difference to be able to have a mentor like that. And then everybody wants a learning difference because everybody wants this cool college kid to be their mentor. Um, so we really kind of flipped it on its head in the schools that we work in, and, and it becomes a celebration of, of, I wouldn't use this word in a school, but we call it cognitive diversity, <laughs> this idea that everyone learns differently. So this is like a, a very innovative idea, and I assume obviously you're the one who, who, who thought of, who, who created it, um, that you bring in these these mentors who have learning disabilities, these young kids, they're not young kids, but these college students who the other, the younger students can identify with. Um, so talk, how did you, I mean, when did you sort of, when did you, I guess, develop eye to eye? How did that all come about? So in um, 1998, when I charged off to Brown University as a freshman, um, I realized that uh, I was going to be, I was nervous. I, I didn't know. I didn't know how I was going to be able to succeed in in, in college because I had str- I had struggled so much in school, and even though I had gotten into this very competitive university, I still had a lot of demons with me. And I thought to myself, you know, why? Why? Why is that the case that I didn't think that I would be here? And what I realized is that I didn't know anyone else who, um, in my life, that had gone to college or that was in college that had a learning difference. And I can't take full credit for coming up with the idea. I'm very grateful that right place, right time, I met a handful of other people um, all, you know, sort of early on in their college careers, freshmen, sophomore, juniors, um, a couple of juniors, mostly freshmen and sophomore, who also felt this way. And we said, well, okay, we can't change what happened for us. Like we didn't know people like us, but we can change it for other kids. And so we literally just said, we are the college kids we wish we knew. And we went to a local elementary school, um, met this amazing teacher named Maureen Kenner, who um, said, sure, you can come hang out with my fourth graders and third graders who have learning differences. And we just started spending time together. And the magic of it wasn't just the impact we had on the kids. I mean, the kids suddenly had a whole different vision for what they could become. We actually changed ourselves in the process. I mean, we rewrote our histories in a way. Um, and I credit a lot of the reason why I was able to, you know, graduate from college and then graduate school and start this nonprofit is because of the mentees that I had um, that told me something about myself that I forgot or didn't know um, existed. And today, I mean, I, I have chapters in 57 um, different places in 22 states, and it is absolutely a collective effort. I get to be a part of this very massive community, the only community of its kind, where the only nonprofit that actually organizes young people who have learning differences um, and helps them become change agents um, in their world. So you changed them, you've transformed them, and they've transformed you also in the process. Oh, yeah, every day, every day. I actually came in um, this morning right before doing this interview, and I see a note on my desk from a parent who had apparently stopped by the office and just said, you know, eye to eye, you're my hero. I was like, what? Oh, Wow. That's 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 fuel in my tank too. Yeah, well, um, think about all the parents who feel that way who don't even say it to you or write it or, um, you know, that must be 
I mean, here you have, you know, a parent did write you that, but think of all the people that you've transformed. It's amazing. I'm looking at that, you know, you're 34 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So you were at Brown. My, my son, who's was at Brown, is 34 years old. Oh, I wonder if we knew each other. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to take that offline and figure out if the Small World Network is uh, exactly. in effect. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So eye to eye, what's in the future for that? I mean, you're all over. You're everywhere now. I mean... We are. So um, I think the future is probably going to be the workplace. So when I started doing this work, it was you know, really clear to me that we needed to reform um, education. And um, I, I grew up right as Teach for America was becoming uh, you know, kind of a force and, and this idea that young people could serve to help um, change the way our education system was functioning. Uh, was inspiring. And, and so, you know, a lot of times we think about Teach for America and we think about them serving sort of the 80% of kids who don't have learning disabilities. And so eye to eye has come in to try and, and serve the 20% of kids who have learning differences. So we, being very specific in our focus. Um, but what I'm now realizing as I'm 34 and working that, you know, learning differences don't go away. Uh, so my next book might be Working Differently. Um, something along the lines of what it means to have a learning difference in the workplace. But for now, I'm very focused on, um, you know, just making sure that parents have the tools that we've learned in IDI. I think in the immediate future, this book has been the next best thing for us because um, what I love about IDI is that we're directly impacting the kids we work with in our school system. But what I recognize is that the lessons that we have in the program should be available to all universally. And I really hope that's what the book serves. I mean, I really hope parents can, you know, we're giving it all away in this book. Yep. Um, there's no secrets. We want everyone to succeed. So hopefully this book will serve that purpose. Yeah, well, I think you're on the right track, obviously, but I'm thinking as you're talking about working differently, you know, which is the next phase, I mean, I'm thinking of the, the boy, the stigma associated with that. I mean, do you go and apply for a job or have an interview and then and then say that you think differently or that you you suffer from ADHD or dyslexia. Um, how, how does that work? So a ton of the interviews, just, you know, things surface when you start talking to folks. Um, a ton of the interviews that came out in researching for this book ended up being interviews about the workplace. Um, and, you know, some of the, the, the quick things that I learned was, you know, you, you probably don't want to talk about it in your interview unless you happen to have someone who's really progressive um, but you definitely want to talk about it early on if, if you need accommodations. But then, you know, I say that, and I heard a story about one of our mentors who was so loud and proud about their LD that they, um, they talked about an interview and they actually got the job because uh, the, the person interviewing them had a kid who had a learning difference and said, well, you're just like my kid, and I think my kid's awesome, so you must be awesome too. Mm-hmm. So I have to unpack it a little bit uh, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and, um, and I think, you know, if one in five kids have learning differences, that means, you know, their parents also have learning differences, um, potentially, because uh, there's a 75% chance that if you're LD, your, your, your kid's going to be LD. Um, so I actually think we might identify a lot of parents in the process of empowering our kids um, to see that they also have a learning difference. And so some of the lessons in this book that are really directed towards helping kids, I think, could potentially help parents, too. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm really interested to see what kind of response we get from parents, because the advice that, that comes from this book are not just from my experience. It's from the experiences of lots and lots of people. And some of the tools are tools that are universal. So I point out the importance of just knowing how your mind works. 
Yep. No, we have you your you it. We have to end on that one because uh, we have 30 seconds left. Okay. Uh, so know how your mind works. You can go to your website. <laughs> we can go to your website uh, at uh, davidflink.com, right? Um, yep. Co-founder and chief empowerment officer of Eye to Eye and his book, uh, which is a, a terrific guide, Thinking Differently, an inspiring guide for parents of children with learning disabilities. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, David. No, thanks for having me. What a pleasure. Yeah, it was great. Um, We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Wealth Generators empowers your personal freedom.